So hello and welcome to the Expat Pod. My name is James, your host, and today I'm joined by Issa, who we met on Facebook. Actually, you commented on a post I put about, about asking if there's some amazing people who've lived abroad and wish to share their story, and you you agreed to that. So thank you for for first of all replying to my my post, and second of all for agreeing to be on this podcast. Um, do you wish to share where you're from and where you've lived? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Thanks, James. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I think when I see posts like that, I'm always happy to get involved. I've lived in so many different places. Um, Like even if I think back to college time, I lived in Germany for a summer. I lived in the States for two summers. I lived in Barcelona on Erasmus for a year as well. But I suppose more kind of professionally speaking, since I started working when I was about 26 or 27, I can never remember which. I don't know why. I was 26 or 27 and I moved to London and that had always been a dream of mine. It had always been an ambition to me being from Dublin. Uh, London is kind of like the big smoke. It's, it's you know, Dublin is a city, but, but London is like, wow, that's so aspirational. And when I decided to move there, my friends told me, uh, wow, it's about time because you've been talking about that long enough. And I hadn't realized, I think I was waiting for someone to grab me by the hand and say, come on, we're heading over to London. And, you know, I'll talk about some of the lessons around that uh, later on, I'm sure. But that was my kind of first foray into living properly away when I was a professional. But uh, after spending a few years in London, and I didn't intend to stay so long, uh, I traveled on a little bit. And on my way to Australia, I traveled around Southeast Asia but I went to live in Australia and again didn't really know what the future held but I ended up staying there for two and a half years and then I uh, I came back to Ireland eventually again loads of travel on the way home Australia is so far away that it's I feel like it's kind of rude not to do loads of travel when you're on your way there or on your way back so I ended up back in Dublin then at the end of all of that travel and I stayed in Dublin for about 10 years actually uh, I, again, not with the intention. I was kind of going back with the with the intention of this doesn't have to be forever. I can pick up and I can move somewhere else uh, if I want to. And now as we're chatting, I'm in Tenerife in the Canary Islands. And I've been here back and forth since January 22. So I came over for a month initially and uh, really enjoyed it kind of much like yourself loved enjoying being in the loved being in the in the warmth when it was freezing cold at home and then I went back to Ireland after that for a stint and I've come back at, at uh, various different intervals as well and at the moment I'm here essentially uh, on a one-way ticket if you want to describe it like that so previously I would have come over and I would have had a flight a return flight booked already but at the moment I'm on a one-way ticket and I don't have an intention yet to, to kind of move home permanently, at least. I will go home, I'd, I'd say, during the summer when it's really hot here and when it's reasonable weather. I don't want to get my hopes up too much for going back to Ireland in the summer, but it's not uh, not as bad as it is in the wintertime, put it that way. Wonderful. Well, what a great decision you've given. So I know welcome to section one of the podcast, all about getting there. So Aoife, you've obviously highlighted the amazing places you've lived. Um, I guess London, maybe not so much, because I'm, I'm from the north of England and I'm a bit biased. But <laughs> um, 
but yes yeah, so how did you so first of all you, you said you lived in germany for a summer yeah how did you uh manage to i guess conjure up that kind of move <laughs> really good question so germany i was studying business with languages in college so i was studying international business with german and spanish and germany is kind i feel like it was a rite of passage at least among the friends that i had it was kind of a rite of passage you go to germany for a summer it's just to have to have fun and to make money at the same time so it's after the first year of college uni as you call it in in the uk so after my first year in university i went to germany for a summer but i suppose the strange thing about that is i didn't go to munich which was the kind of typical place that people go and the really cool place and it's where where they have oktoberfest and everything we went to frankfurt which is the financial center of of uh, of germany and a little bit different but we tended to we walked the streets essentially to find jobs you know this is before the internet was really big it was you know you had to literally call into businesses bring a cv with you and talk to the owners or the 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 managers about getting a job so myself and my friend ended up in in the same place working together and another two friends ended up in the same place working together as well and their place provided accommodation our place didn't so we had the additional then barrier of trying to find accommodation when we first arrived we we're staying in a hostel but from memory now this is going back you know 20 plus years but from memory they did a weird thing where they kicked you out in the middle of the day so you couldn't just hang out in the hostel you had to be out so that they were, you know, cleaning and doing random stuff like that. But um, yeah, like the big challenge there, I think at the time was finding accommodation, as it most certainly is a lot of the time. I think, uh, you know, things are a bit easier now with online hostel booking systems and Airbnb, dare I say it. It does sometimes make things easier, if a little bit more expensive. I guess it was during the European Union, well, I guess Ireland's still in the European Union, that's the way you saying that. So there's no issue with going over and no tourist season, no work visa. There is no issue whatsoever. Now, we did have to do some weird tests because in Germany, if you work in a restaurant, we had to do a test for tuberculosis, I remember. And there was another, oh yeah, there was another test. I don't know, is it too dirty to talk about? But basically... Uh, you have to go to the bathroom and take a sample and then send the sample in the post to be examined for Thanks. something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we yep. called it in German the Scheiße test. <laughs> but it, I think people can deduce what that's about. But yeah, there is kind of, you know, that was, again, just a factor that we had to, it was something that we had to wait to get results and then they could give us the job. So um, just kind of weird, random stuff, like having to get those weird tests. Yeah. Going to your next location in the US, was that a similar thing you did in terms of going? Yeah, so well, in in the States, and it's the same in the UK, I know, because the second time I got the visa was through BUNAC. So the first time I got the visa was through a company, I think they don't exist anymore, a company in Ireland called Use It. And you can get a, it's called a J1 visa. And you go and you work in the States for the summer. Um, basically, I think they give you four months grace and then you can travel around at the end of the visa and things like that. So really amazing opportunity. Uh, again, you know, in your innocence, when you're a student, you just kind of head over and hope for the best, maybe have a night or a couple of nights accommodation booked. Um, so let me think the first place that I went would have been Montauk. And then, I mean, desperate times. So many people arrived there. 
And then you just see the droves and droves arriving every day. And then people start to end up leaving then because they can't find accommodation. You're living basically in motels or former motels, six to a room we had. So there were two couples in the room. There was myself. I was sleeping in a single bed in the kitchenette, basically. And then one of their friends came and then you had the local hillbilly Frank to come around and collect his rent once a week. And I'm sure we paid something extortionate for what we were getting. I think it was like $100 a week or something crazy like that. And, you know, this is 20 years ago and six to a, a tiny motel type of room with the kitchenette that, you know, not a full proper kitchen or anything like that. Um, so accommodation was always the, the big struggle. Jobs, fairly easy to come by. It was really just the accommodation and making sure you had a roof over your head for the summer. I also have had a J1 visa, but I went to teach go-karting in a summer camp. So wow. it was a bit more organized work. It's yeah. like Camp America, effectively, yeah. where you go and you spend uh, six six weeks teaching kids to do the sport or you can be a counsellor to go calling I remember seeing that as well yeah yeah there's so many different inspiration stories and so many different opportunities I think that you can like I mean I, I read about people going to Hawaii and you know you can obviously go to the west coast or you can go to places in the middle of nowhere that people don't really know that much about I think there's like there's been a huge drop off from what I understand from the difference between when I was in university versus people who are in university now and how they're, they just don't really have this desire to go. Maybe it's the States in general and what they're seeing kind of being put out there in media. They're a little bit turned off by it, but it's certainly not as popular as it was when I, when I went. In the exchange rates change as well, I guess. Ah, okay. That will have might be a big thing too. Because it was like, um, <laughs> when I was growing up, we went in 2002 and it was like uh, $2 to the pound or something. So you could go and get things half price or whatever. Yeah. Now it's, you know, it's not that, that much. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's still quite expensive to, to go all that way and then spend that much time. But also, as you mentioned, yeah, the, maybe the uh, opinion of America is not as, not as, uh, as positive as, as it was, or was it once was, maybe in Europe anyway. Yeah. But um, going to your next location then, so you moved to London. How was that? I mean, like I said before, it was kind of, it was something I always wanted to do. And I don't know, I always felt a strong connection with it. And maybe that's from, again, from books that I read or movies that I saw. I know it's kind of silly what you see in the media, but I, I absolutely loved living in London. My aunt lived in London as well. So I had somewhere to to base myself and I stayed with her for the first nine months. So again, accommodation wasn't the issue there. Um, uh, really, it was the trying to find a job, find, trying, trying to find a job that was within a reasonable distance. So I remember doing interviews in places quite far away on the train. And I didn't realize and you have to take connecting trains and also there was all sorts of trouble around that. And it made me realize that if I didn't have a car, which I didn't, and I wasn't planning to buy a car when I lived in London, if I didn't have a car, I had to find something that was in and around London. So I managed to, and I must say for the time that I was there, I absolutely, I loved my job. Um, London is the kind of place that it sort of takes six months to a year to properly settle in, to get to know your way around. Like it's huge. And I remember my cousin, you know, she grew up in London and she always used to laugh at me because she'd say, if we were going to a friend's house in, in my hometown in Dublin, I'd say, oh, it's just down the road. And when I say down the road, I mean like it's a five minute walk, 10 minutes, maybe 15 at a, at a push. 
And when she says, oh, we're going to my friend's house and it's only down the road, she means it's a 45 minutes on the tube minimum. So it's the kind of, it's the difference, isn't it, in the scale of things there. But um, no, I, lo- I loved my time in London. Where I worked was in West London. And every time I was taking the tube then, so I was either taking a bus when I lived with my aunt, which is really convenient to drop me right outside the door. When I eventually moved out of there, uh, I was taking the tube every day, but I was going against the traffic. So everyone had already kind of been through central London and we were going further out west uh, to West London. And I look back maybe with rose tinted glasses, but like that was part of the glamour of it is living in a city where there is that you know, the metro system or whatever you want to call it. Um, but it was brilliant. I, I just absolutely loved it. In terms of making friends and connections, then for me, it was, uh, I had a friend over there. We kind of stuck together. And then I had my neighbor from home. Her cousin lived in London, so we connected. I had a friend from college there or a couple of friends from college, actually. So we all sort of connected separately And then after a while, I really got into the social side of things at work and I made some really great friends through work as well. So moving away from that expat lifestyle, if you like. So all of the other friends were Irish, whereas my work friends would have been from all over the UK. Um, uh, Mostly, yeah, all over the UK they were from. Um, So it was was kind of a nice mix. I really liked my, my, the social side of things and at one stage, I found I had almost too much to do. I was saying yes to everything because there is, there's so much to do. My initial thought about London was I'll have so, so, so much easier access to continental Europe from there and cheaper flights. Um, and I didn't really take proper advantage of that because I was busy doing so much in London that I wasn't necessarily traveling over to other places to see them. Like I wasn't having to, like in my mind, I was like, oh, go to Paris for a weekend uh, or or take the the uh, Eurotunnel, is that what they're calling it Eurostar, these days? Yeah. The Eurostar. The Channel, as it used to be called, I think, the Channel <laughs> Tunnel. Um, HS1, but no one calls it that because it's the negative stuff with HS2. Okay, uh. <laughs> I see. Um, but yeah, no, I absolutely loved, I loved living in London. Um, the job, I did some temping when I first got there. That was really good. I hoped that would turn into something more permanent. And I had sent out a few different CVs for something that was a bit more relevant to what I had been doing in Dublin previously. And I eventually heard back from someone. He had been on holidays and that's why he hadn't kind of come back to me. And I ended up interviewing there and they gave me all sorts of like personality tests and everything. And I I ended up staying there for three and a half years. I loved it. Like, as I mentioned, I went initially with the idea that I was going to stay for a year and then move on and travel around to Australia. But it takes so long to settle in. And I loved my job so much. I loved my social life and my friends. And like I look back fondly on that as one of the best times of my life, I would say. I loved living in London. But I ended up staying. Yeah, like I, wa- I wanted to earn sterling because sterling is always pretty strong currency to have with the intention of going to Australia then with that money and and spending it traveling and spending it over in Australia. So Getting on to Australia, mm. what was your real reason for wanting to go there? Was it just that it was a passion of yours? Was it just a, yeah, a I, dream to, to live there? I think, again, similar to the Germany thing, I feel like Australia is sort of a rite of passage. A lot of my friends had already been to Australia. People go there, I think, when they're in their 20s. And they go and they, they maybe pick fruit on a farm. Like in my head, this was 
this was a dream. I was like, oh, wow, wouldn't that be so amazing? Not thinking about the back-breaking work that's actually involved in it and, you know, how little you get paid and they're going through them and they're like, well, this apple has worms in it, so we're not giving you any money for that or whatever it might be. And that that kind of dream was, was uh, I think by the time I got into my 30s and had an established career, that wasn't that wasn't really the dream anymore. But I had a real passion for travel. So I did spend a lot of time traveling. I spent six months traveling on my way to Australia. And interestingly, when I was still in London, I connected with someone who I had been in college with. We didn't do the same course or anything like that, but we were kind of loose friends, if you like. We knew each other from around. We knew each other to have a chat to. And we reconnected in London um, and we used to meet up quite a bit in London, actually, in, in our last year. And we, yeah, our last year there together. And we talked about how we both wanted to go to Australia. She had already applied for the visa. So I know you're going to ask about the visa situation. At that stage, you had to be under 30 to apply for the visa. And then you had a year to activate the visa. She had already applied for the visa at that stage and I was applying for, I applied for mine um, a, bit, a little bit later. I think in the summertime I had applied for mine. So it meant that when we were traveling together around Asia, we only had six weeks together and then I was kind of off on my own, which was quite a nice way to do it because going to somewhere that's so far away from home, you don't speak the language, you don't know how kind of dangerous it, it's going to be, especially as a woman, two of us in it together. And to be perfectly fair, like the first few nights, if not the first kind of few weeks, we we did kind of live it up a little bit because the hotels are so much cheaper over there. And it's like, let's stay in a hotel rather than in kind of a shack or a hut or a hostel or something. So we did kind of invest a little bit the first few nights and eased our way in and we were taking flights instead of buses and, and things like that. But we traveled together for six weeks and then the rest of the time I had on my own. So I was traveling around Southeast Asia by myself, uh, which I which I actually loved because you can kind of just stay somewhere if you want to stay for longer. I ended up spending two months in Vietnam. I spent so long that I had to send my my um, passport off to to get to renew my visa to stay another month basically and um, but I eventually landed in Perth in Australia my friend had been there she had sort of set set up a life for herself already because she stayed in a hostel when she first got there made loads of friends got a job so she had this kind of social life already which was really great for her but I was also coming in as a as a stranger like I hadn't met these people I hadn't formed that connection with them and when I arrived in Perth, I had a friend in Perth and I stayed with her for the first little while as well. So it was really nice. And I stayed there. And instead of traveling on, which was the intention, after having spent five or six months living out of a backpack, I decided that I wanted to settle down for a bit. So I got a temporary job there. I was on this special uh, working holiday visa, it's called. And they've changed the rules on that now, by the way. So when I was turning 30, the rule was you had to be uh, under 30 to apply for it. And now they change it to 35 is the latest that I know of. It could even be older now. I'm not sure. Um, but certainly when I was 30, returning 30, it was um, it was at the, it was 30. So it's a little bit of a shame because it meant I had to go there, had to leave London for that time. So I worked in a temporary role in a recruit. This is so far beyond what I was ever doing before, but I was working in recruitment administration 
in um, the mining industry. So high volume, blue collar recruitment, really interesting stuff, loads of kind of process driven um, recruitment type of stuff, really out of my comfort zone, but a really nice atmosphere. Like the company that I worked for was incredible. And then I traveled uh, around Australia for a little while when I was finished up there. And I eventually landed in Sydney, which was always the intention. And some people who I had worked with in London, they had set me up with the job in Sydney as well. So when I got there, I wasn't stuck and I had friends. So I slept on a friend's couch for a couple of nights and then I slept on another friend's couch for a couple of weeks. And then I found somewhere to live. Now, compared uh, from Perth to Sydney, so Perth, I was paying 300 and no, how much was it? I can't remember. Anyway, basically, I came arrived in Sydney thinking I'll probably be paying about double compared to to the Perth prices, but I think it was more like triple. So, yeah, and week the rent is weekly there. Like typically, rents are monthly, whereas there it's weekly. And I was going to say I thought it was three hundred and sixty. Now it might have been three hundred and sixty dollars per month in Perth when you add it all together. And when I got to Sydney per month, it was, oh God, it was, because I'm trying to do the exchange rate and everything in my head as well. I think like it was super expensive. Really Did you get the expensive. weekly fee? You're thinking it's a monthly fee? Yeah, something like that. So I remember looking at things that were about $250 per week, per week. And they were dives where you you'd be sleeping in the sitting room basically like they've they basically inverted what should be a living area into someone's bedroom which it wasn't supposed to be um you know and kind of tiny bit of outdoor space so I got sick of looking at those and I upped oh that's what it was it was 350 per week in Sydney so I think it was maybe four times the amount that I was paying in Perth if I am right yeah like it's a huge amount of money and they had a real problem like they something like ninety nine percent occupancy in Sydney as well when I was there. So all of the all of the properties that they had were were occupied. So it was really hard to find somewhere to live unless you were willing to pay a bit of money. Um, but that kind of brings us on to like the the job that I had. People told me how much I should ask for. I really had no idea because I didn't know the local market. But I asked for way more money than people told me to, and they gave it to me. So I was happy enough with the money that I was on. They also had this crazy, crazy rule called the living away from home allowance, which I think was supposed to be meant for local local Australians who had to live away from their house. And they were trying to subsidize their rent in some way. Um, so... I can't even remember how it worked, but they basically take off a certain amount every month before they tax you, then they tax you, and then they add that amount back on. So so the tax was much lower um, by comparison as well. So yeah, really, I mean, I think someone in the UK slash Irish community found some sort of loophole, started applying for this thing called the living away from home allowance. It really took off. And then they probably clamped down after that going, hey, this is not supposed to be for for you guys who are here on like not a tourist visa but like a kind of a temporary visa it's not supposed to be for you at all <laughs> but uh, I ain't going to complain too much about that um, so that was that was Australia and I did as much travel while I was there as I could uh, in terms of making friends 
I think it was more or less all through work, actually. Um, I made a good friend in my flatmate that I had as well. Uh, I moved uh, into a place and then I moved again. So the second place that I was, we became very good friends. And then there's loads of meet up groups and expat things that are happening. So I went along to a load of those kinds of things. There was this thing called the Irish Breakfast Club. So you go along and you have breakfast and and yeah, just groups of, of other Irish people enjoying enjoying the local food, foodie scene in Sydney. Um, and then, yeah, through work and then from friends from home or or friends of friends, like I had a, a second cousin who was there, for example, and my mom knew she was there. So she was like, oh, you should get in touch with your second cousin who's over there as well. And so we met up and we had dinner a few times and I stayed over in her place a few times and things as well. So I think it's just a case of reaching out to your like network is probably the wrong word but I don't know what else what other word to use but like thinking extended about network. extended network or people know that you're there or you know mum was always trying to connect me with distant relatives to to meet up with and when I traveled then I met up with various different people in various different locations um which was really nice actually just to have a, f- a familiar face even if you didn't know them that well but Meetup was was a brilliant resource for that kind of thing as well. And then work, we always used to go out for Friday drinks with work and I made some really brilliant friends through work as well. That's incredible. And then, so you then moved back home to Ireland. Yeah. And then now in Tenerife, yeah. kind of go forth. Yeah. So again, Tenerife was with a friend. Um, it was November in Ireland, dark wet cold and I was thinking I wanted to go on holiday and I'd seen a flight I think it was 150 euros that obviously doesn't include the accommodation and stuff that you have to pay on top of that so I was really needing um just a, a holiday it would have been towards the end of covid sorry the end of the first year of covid so probably a little break in the in between where we were allowed to fly and things like that. And so I was looking at holidays then. And my friend just happened to say she had just come back from Portugal. She went to Portugal for a month to work remotely from there. And she said, listen, I'm going to head over to Tenerife. And why don't you come with me? And I just kind of on the spur of the moment, I was like, yeah, OK, great. Um, and we we booked our flights now, that is one thing I'll say because it's a bit more kind of recent in my memory. But but when it came then to finding accommodation, it was hard to find accommodation that slotted in with the flights. So I think when you're thinking about it, you need to find both at the same time or find the accommodation first and then book your flights around the accommodation. Because the accommodation piece, especially here in Tenerife, and it seems to be getting worse, it's really hard to find stuff, especially short term. That's not super expensive. Um, I'm talking sort of minimum 45 euros per night. And I say per night because a lot of the time that's how you see things advertised is per night as if it's a hotel when it's not. You want to rent somewhere for for a month. It's not a hotel that you're talking about. Now, we paid 1400 euros. That included everything. And it was a two bedroom place. Um, The Wi-Fi was pretty good because, you know, obviously these are the, the things that you're considering when when I think we we skipped a whole portion of of kind of 
quite an relief because there's sort of a 10 year gap in there in between. But in that interim, I set up my own business. Um, I started a podcast called Happier at Work. And so the difference, I suppose, with going to Australia, which was in 2010 is when I arrived in Australia after all of my travels. So about 13 and a half years ago, the difference between arriving there to someone who had already set me up with a job and then like a temp job before I started my permanent job is I'm coming over to Tenerife and I'm working in my own business. So I don't have to go and look for a job or anything like that. I did mention earlier as well that I had languages as part of my degree. So before I went to Tenerife in January 2022, Christmas 2021, I started back Duolingo. So I'm on day 600 and whatever now. Um, But I started back Duolingo, which got me back into it. And then just being around people and trying to speak the language really helped me to kind of to to pick it back up again. So the um yeah the challenges really were around accommodation we booked that first one through airbnb no problem at all was slightly on the expensive side compared to if you had gone say to someone locally for example um in terms of connecting with people and finding people i think because i was there with a friend it didn't really matter that first month that i was there when i knew that i was going to be here a little bit more permanently i wanted to meet people And I think by chance, I had an appointment with someone uh, for something completely unrelated. And I think she just happened to say in passing, oh, by the way, there's this group for ladies in business in Tenerife. So I'll send you the link later. Check it out. So I did. And that was a brilliant way to find loads of people from all over, you know, all over the world, because I think the Canaries tends to attract people from all over because of the climate that it has. It's so... It's so nice. It's temperate all year round. It doesn't get too extremely hot and it never gets too cold either. So it's it's really nice from that perspective. But that kind of opened my eyes to all these other things. Like there's loads of co-working spaces here as well. That's another great way to meet people. There's loads of different WhatsApp groups that you can join for different interests that you might have, whether it's in hiking or, you know, and, and I think it's just having your finger on the pulse. And for me, if I was to offer advice to people, it's it's to head to a co-working space and to talk to other people because they're surely going to know about what's going on. If there's events, there's very there's special events that happen for expats here as well. I'm a little bit far removed from it where I'm living at the moment. But once I move back down to the south of Tenerife, I'll, I'll um, be getting back into those kind of events and things as well. Amazing. And um, I guess that's a great... <laughs> kind of how you got to all those places. Is there anything else you wish to add before we go to the next section about being there? I don't think so. I think from a language perspective, the only challenge has been Spain. But like I said, I had that from when I lived in in Barcelona for the year and having had it for for my degree, you know, that was a real benefit. But I think if you show the effort of trying to speak the language, they really appreciate that. Whereas if you don't make any effort at all to to learn it or to speak it, I I think it's a little bit frowned upon. That's very true. I think when I was in Sweden, I did try and learn Swedish, but it's a very difficult language yeah. to learn. Yeah, They're yeah. not very useful. At least Spanish is quite wide. Yeah, Spanish. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my, but I, I did learn German beforehand, so I, I used the knowledge of German to learn Swedish because okay. it's very similar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then they just pronounce completely different. <laughs> um, 
but I also have like a 580 odd day uh, Duolingo streak. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Quite useful. Yeah. Well, we'll get into section two then. Perfect. So hello, welcome to section two of the podcast, all about being there. So if you're already kind of given us a great introduction to all your life happenings in all these amazing places, um, from, from the work you've done and how you kind of socialize with people, but kind of going back to when you first arrived in Germany. Yeah, I'm trying to think, I, you know, I think it was, I mentioned already about the weird hostel experience where you had to be out and I think they separated women and men in the hostel and things as well. So it was kind of odd from that perspective. But something has sprung to my mind when you mentioned this idea of like homesickness and, and how you're settling in. And that is that at that time, so again, you know, maybe people are going to have a laugh about this or people who are younger generation are going to be like, what is she talking about? But we had to go to a public payphone to call home. There was no mobile phones. They weren't widely used. They were available, but I think they were kind of, you know, businessmen used them. Uh, they certainly weren't widely available until after I left university, really. So if you wanted to call home and and you didn't have laptops either, there was none of that. You, you might have gone to an internet cafe to send an email to someone, but like that's that's kind of the height of it. it was probably dial-up connection and, you know, with nothing sophisticated whatsoever. So you're going to a public phone box. You had to buy a special card to do uh, like a collect call you call this number and then you dial in the number and um, and then you get it for a reduced rate or you can do a collect call as well and there's there was a way to do a cheap collect call if I remember and then they connect you like you speak to an operator they connect you home so I was on the phone and I wasn't I don't think I was having a great time I wasn't settling in or something and I was on the phone for a long time to home and I had someone banging on the door behind me who wanted to use the phone box. And it's kind of like, could you not just go somewhere else? You can see that I'm here and I'm having a conversation and please don't kind of interrupt me. It was very upsetting at the time because, you know, I wasn't having the, the best time and I just wanted to speak to my parents where nowadays it's great because, you know, I would say everyone, but most people would have a smartphone and you can you can do video calls on it and you can actually talk to people and you can see their faces. Whereas this is, it's just a phone call and it, it just felt very far removed. It was also the time of like letter writing. Like we would have written letters to people. I remember getting letters from my granny when I lived there and, and things like that. And probably when I was in in the States as well, the first time I was in the States, it would have been into letters. Maybe the second time, not as much. Things have sort of started to progress then. It was more about emails and going to an internet cafe to send people emails rather than sending letters. Um, but some people still, I think, at that stage sent letters. But that that's kind of an maybe an interesting story is not the word, but that's something that strange that kind of that happened there that, you know, trying to connect with home and it's really hard to connect with home. But then someone banging on the door behind you trying to, to get in to, to make a phone call themselves. Were they, were they banging in, in uh, ever increasingly angry German as well I, I think so and I don't think it was a German I think it was a foreigner who probably had the same idea that they wanted to to call someone at home as well you know and what was your well when you uh, were in Germany and what was your impression of the actual country itself you said you lived in Frankfurt not Munich or Berlin or any of the pieces people your first I'm trying to remember what I thought like for me it was nice there's a lot of foreigners in um 
there was a lot of foreigners in uh, in Germany actually and well now that you're saying it I think one of the things I did notice where I worked was it was the Germans who were the leaders in the business and it was the foreigners who were doing all of the not to say that the leaders weren't doing any work but like the kind of the grunt work the lifting plates the serving customers it was all the all foreigners where I worked and I think it was very similar in a lot of different places as well um, there was a kind of a thriving Irish pub culture as well the other side of the river we used to hang out there quite a bit uh, it could be a, a little bit dangerous at times because there were like the bars like let's say the main bar closed at two but then there's a bar across the road that closed at four there's another one that closed at five another one closed at eight in the morning so you were never stuck for somewhere to go I think I may have ended up in the five o'clock bar one time, but I don't think I ever ended up in the, the eight o'clock bar. Like graduate. It's, just, it's just dangerous. Exactly. You know, especially young Irish students kind of let loose for the first time, uh, living away from home for the first time. Um, it can be a little bit dangerous. <laughs> and then uh, fast forwarding to America then, when you first arrived in the States, what was your impression of that you said you went to Motown there's lots of you arrived it was quite a, a batched uh community I suppose did that get all American and American vibe or were you because you were with lots of multinational people it didn't really matter I say multinational and it's mostly Irish so big descent of the Irish because it was a really popular place to work at that time so we went and we worked there for the summer it's, it's kind of hard to say and Montauk is in Long Island it's near the Hamptons it's a really posh area so any rich people basically have a house there as well so the people who go there for the summer uh, and then this is kind of what I learned about America as well they have um, there's 4th of July obviously on the 4th of July and then there's Labor Day which is early September and that's the busy season so people are either down for the weekend in their summer house or they're down for the entire summer in their summer house there so you know it's just kind of learning a little bit more about the culture of that I didn't see a huge amount because I was working most of the time. Um, and when I wasn't working, I was probably out in the pub or something like that, to be perfectly honest. Um, so it, I suppose it was a bit of an exposure to how the other half lives. So I'm serving ice cream to these people who have loads of money and, uh, you know, living in these big fancy houses and, and all of that kind of thing and loads just loads of other Irish people there working and equally living in, in I won't say absolute squalor, but somewhat a little bit of squalor. Six to a room, yeah. And six to a room, exactly that. And paying a lot in those days for six to a room as well. Yeah. Did it live up to what you thought it might do when you first arrived? Did you have this kind of vision of what it might be? Yeah, I wasn't, I'm not sure that I remember having any expectations whatsoever just to have fun for the summer just to be around and I must say I I loved it like I mean I say all of these things and it was expensive and it was this and whatever but I absolutely loved my time there and I managed to save a bit of money as well it was right before I was going to Barcelona for my Erasmus I managed to save a bit of money which was great but I also um, I went down to New York City a couple of times, I think a few times, but one of the things, one of the memorable, memorable moments from that was that I went on the Ricky Lake show. I don't know if you remember the Ricky Lake show. It was like a, a talk show basically back in the 
90s, I guess early, uh, when, that would have been 1999. So I don't know, was she going much longer after that? But yeah, like kind of equivalent at that time of the likes of Oprah and, and, and things, you know, so I was a guest on the show. I wasn't, um, I wasn't in the, the kind of, sorry, I was in the audience member as opposed to being a guest on the show. Um, yeah, like these, I don't even remember what the topic was, but I think just walking around New York City as well, I was just in awe. I'm sure I'd been there as a kid, but this was the first time probably as a as a 20 year old, you know, old enough to appreciate it, old enough to kind of to take it all in and to see. Um, another thing actually worth noting on that, given that I was saying I was 20 and the legal drinking age there is 21. They have this thing, you know, the states, they do their dates backwards. My birth date is the 1st of December. And so they were reading that as January 12th, which meant technically I was 21, according to them. So it took them about six weeks to realize with me using my real ID, took them about six weeks to realize that um, they were reading the date backwards. And actually, I was only 20. And that's also before like the the card um driver's license are only quite a relatively new thing in Ireland like and I say new I mean in the last few years I got my card license back then it was a piece of paper that was laminated so so many people had fake IDs that looked completely fake and for a while I was using my friend's fake ID and it looked nothing like her so you had to have all of these considerations that if you wanted to go and have a few drinks with your friends you had to either have fake ID or you had to have something because they were really strict about it as well like maybe not as strict in Montauk as they would have been saying in the city where they're kind of checking whether something is real or not or knowing how to check whether something is real for they're they're used to probably having proper cards and we're showing up with this piece of pink paper that says that you're able to drive and has the date in the wrong place you know yeah we have a very similar story because I went when I was 20 I went in June and I was um, I was 21 in August so I, I turned 21 when I was living there yeah. Um, which is which is very good fun, but because I'm August fifth, that's oh five away, day four is eighth of May. Yeah. So <laughs> I was yeah, just drinking and I had my driving license, which was obviously a plastic card. So yeah. Like, oh yeah, it's definitely fine. But the lady who was in the bar that we kept going to, she was from the UK originally, but had been in America for so long she forgot. Yeah. So nice. When I turned to her, I took my, my passport, which says oh five all day three. And they were like, Oh, uh, you've been lying to us the entire time. I said, well, I haven't. I've been giving you my ID. You've then took that to believe I'm 21. That's not my fault. <laughs> it's like, um, can I have my 21st birthday here in your bar that I've been drinking in for the last few months? <laughs> well, I, <laughs> Underage. Yeah. I think they, they just laughed about it because they never like, well, we're still making money because obviously it was a, it was in Monroe in New York. So it was quite far away from from. Anything yeah. else was up to I New think York, when it's so. in the when it's far away from the city, I think he can kind of <laughs> make things a bit yeah. easier, let's say. Yeah, from it's like, it's like the UK or, or Ireland, but I grew up in, in uh just north of Liverpool and you could drink it from any age or any pub as long as you're you know Yeah. Because most people know everyone else everyone knows everyone there, so it's kinda of like you look after everyone. I think the, um, the the form of ID checking when I was younger was what's your date of birth? And then instead of telling them that you're 18, it's best to tell them that you're 19 because if you say you're 18, that poses too many questions. The other way they caught you was if you changed the birth date, then they'd say, what's your star sign? Everyone knows their star sign. 
And so you have to keep the same birth date, but just change the year. Uh, yeah. <laughs> These are all the tips uh, and tricks. Yeah. Underage trick. Yeah. It's a new podcast there. Uh, <laughs> so then going from going from America and you to the Erasmus in Barcelona. Yeah. What was that like in terms of the cultural differences? Yeah, that was that was tough as well because I'd been in America. I had a brilliant summer and then I knew I was going to Barcelona for an entire year. So it's different, I think, the mentality of being somewhere. Um, I think in retrospect, I hung out way too much with my Irish friends. It was brilliant and we formed a brilliant friendship group and everything like that. But it probably impacted on my ability to speak Spanish, not helped by the fact that in Barcelona, they, the primary language is Catalan. So the ads are in Catalan. The TV is mostly in Catalan. The radio is in Catalan. <clears throat> Anything that you're looking at is normally in Catalan rather than in Spanish. So it just made it a little bit harder to pick up the language. There were some things and you could listen to national radio and, and things like that to pick up to pick up the language. But it was a little, just made that a little bit harder. Like we were going to university as well. Um, and uh, we had to very deliberately pick the subjects that were being taught through Spanish rather than Catalan. And then when it came to doing exams, they were all given in Catalan. And so we put in a complaint about that. And I think we all just passed anyway. I think they just, they don't really care. I think when you're doing Erasmus, I don't think it's a big deal for them. No, I think it's like a, the get 30% or something and you you pass it. Yeah. The main thing is that it's a, it's a cultural exchange. Which yeah, exactly. Erasmus. Yeah. This is it. This is it. And then, so you went to London. Um, following that, after London, going home. yeah. I mean, I don't think there was a huge culture shift there for me at that time. I'm trying to think: Do we have Boots in Ireland? Because I remember certainly when I was younger, going to London, the excitement was going into Boots and even buying the Boots own brand soap or the own brand shampoo when I was younger was such a treat because just because we didn't have it in Ireland it was so exotic and so maybe if I'm thinking of London it's things like Sainsbury's which is a lovely supermarket to shop in you know it's just these random little things um having like a pub at the end of the road that you don't necessarily have um the public transport was incredible in London I think because it's so big like the buses come every few minutes the tube comes every few minutes as well like you miss a tube and there's one in three minutes compared that to Sydney and it's you miss a train and the next one is in 15 minutes so it's the difference between being 10 minutes early and five minutes late into work you know um so probably less of a culture shock and, and more of a now my life can begin because I love London. Um, the I think the, the thing with it is it's so big and it's so hard to explore everything. The, like the tube map alone, just getting to know where you need to change to get to go somewhere else or, you know, getting to know all of that, the pace. So how people walk and how people don't look at each other on the tube, you know, just things like or that. smile, yeah. They don't smile. Um, they, you don't really acknowledge people. You sort of get used to that kind of quickly, I think. You just, everything seems to be race and fast and, um, yeah, um, which it's not like that in other places. Yeah, and then is it, so Sydney's quite a big city as well. And you said that's... It is, yeah, to, yeah. To, yeah, well I, well, I first landed in Perth, which is quite different. And, you know, rather than saying culture shock, it's more 
I'll talk about the culture in Australia in general in a minute. But I think my impressions of Perth, it's very removed from a lot of things. Like it's the only city for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles. Like it's it's kind of in the middle of nowhere. Um, it's, I call it quite a dry place. And I mean that as in like, it, maybe, maybe it's good if you're bringing up a family or something like that, but it's not good if you're young and you want to have some fun. There's a huge mining community there. So a lot of the time, and it's mostly men in that in who work in the mines and they do a range of different jobs painting supervising they do scaffolding there's loads of different roles that you can have when you go and work in the mines but they earn a lot of money but they do this rotational kind of shift work where they might be working on the mines for six weeks at a time and then they come back for one week and when they're in the mines they have nowhere to spend their money they're just there in the desert basically in the middle of nowhere they they can't really get up to much. Um, and then they come back to Perth and there's casinos and all sorts of stuff set up deliberately to part them with their money. And, you know, they they can spend their money on buying boats and buying nice cars and things like that. So that's my impression of Perth, I think, more generally. So that's the kind of, that's sort of what I think of it, that they, they have all of these men who head off for six weeks at a time or it could be different you know there's different shift rotations and things and then they come back for a week and they just blow all their money and then they're back again up to the mines to earn more money because the they're American earning fortune. Like the Australian Vegas yeah mm-hmm. I wouldn't call it as sophisticated as that I'm afraid um, but for me that's that's the impression I, I got was that it's it's a little bit like that that's kind of my lasting memory uh, Sydney is lovely I think again lasting memory I felt like it had no soul everyone told me before I got to Sydney that Melbourne is where it's at Melbourne's way more European it's way more cultured uh, Sydney is beautiful in that it has these iconic buildings that you instantly recognise like the Sydney Harbour Bridge and the Opera House and for that reason, it's like, wow, it's stunning. But beyond that, I felt like it really lacked soul. It really, I really missed that connection piece for me in Sydney. And I did spend a good bit of time in Melbourne before I got to Sydney. And I really liked Melbourne, I have to say. So for me, yeah, Sydney just sort of lacked that. I think generally speaking, my overall impression of Australians is funny because given that it's an entire country built on immigration, they're not very welcoming of people who are not from where they're from. Um, and so it can be very, uh, I, I'm trying to think of the word, very kind of dismissive of foreigners, very much like, oh, you're stealing our jobs, even though there's plenty of jobs for everyone. Um, very derogatory towards the indigenous people there as well. So there's a huge amount of kind of racism around that in particular. Um, a misogynistic type of culture where like kind of macho men and old boys club type of companies uh, that are set up there. Like that's kind of how things are. Very macho men against women kind of like that's my lasting impression of Australia generally is that type of culture and I know that things haven't really changed since I've been there because I know people who work in Australian companies even if they're they're, even if they're working here that culture still filters through 
to to the kind of the working culture here, which is really surprising. Yeah, it's a shame, really. I haven't just caught up, even though we're still nowhere near where we need to be in terms of equality in the workplace or equality all over the world. But I mean, hopefully that, you know, progression should spread, um, which is a shame, really, especially if it's, you know, um, in a developed country like Australia. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, there's there's also the kind of the underlying thing that they still probably get abuse and jokes about, well, you're just a, a nation of um, convicts, you know, because essentially a lot of the people who would have grown up there are probably descendants of people who are sent over as convicts back in the day, you know, and they still have to put up with that type of abuse or that type of acknowledgement, um, you know, that those kind of jokes, which, which are said as jokes, but actually there's kind of an undertone because there's truth behind it as well, you know. Yeah, yeah that's a very good point. I guess it's, it's a retaliation, maybe. Yeah, it could be, yeah. But I, but I kind of think of it as being like the the states. I think in terms of size, it's it's maybe slightly bigger than the United States, but there's a tenth of the population. So Australia is vast. Like there's so many that areas there that are not populated whatsoever. Like it's just desert. There's there's nothing in the middle, and um, there's nothing there. It's in terms of travel. It was an absolutely beautiful country to travel around. There's so many different parts of it that I loved. There's still so many parts that I didn't get to see. But, you know, coming back to the kind of the link with America, America as well is built on immigration. And there there does seem to be this whole thing of we don't like immigrants and we protect our own and that kind of mentality. And Australia is very similar in that also built on immigration but they they also have that impression of we don't really like foreigners coming in here and taking our jobs or whatever it might be, you know. Well, well it's a shame that, that you've experienced that. Always that's your the opinion you have, and hopefully it does change in the future and people do see the 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 value in well, this immigration. Well, is it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like it's not as if it impacted me directly every single day. It was just like the undertone of what I could see was going on. Yeah, I think that's that's a fair point. I think it's something you kind of, I guess you you wouldn't expect in Australia where the language is the same as yours, because like I I noticed that when I did in Sweden, you didn't speak the Swedish language. You did feel like a, a different kind of class because yeah. theatre was not available for you because it was all in Swedish. Yes, or some cinema wasn't available for you because it was all in Swedish yeah. and other things like that are not in your first language. And yeah, not easy to learn. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, we can't really say that in in English speaking countries. We also have a similar issue where people come over and don't speak English. And yeah, exactly. We, you know, we we never change actually. Yeah. So yeah, I can't yeah. really talk because yeah, it's funny. I I I was talking about this with friends recently, saying you know when you're trying to speak to someone in Spanish and there's a language barrier, and they were sort of saying, well, you know, it's it, it's not just the language barrier. Even when you do speak English, there can be a breakdown in communication as well. So just because you have the language doesn't necessarily it should make things easier but it's it doesn't eliminate all the problems let's say this is very true yeah but um going forward to the east then whilst you're there what was your first impression of, of that and how you managed um to... well i mean tenerife i've kind of been coming over and back since i was a teenager um 
with my family on various different family holidays. So I feel like already it was a second home for me. So that was really nice. The place that we stayed because we booked it on Airbnb and we I wasn't I'm afraid to say, but I'm not I wasn't too familiar with anywhere outside of the places I had already been. So I knew of the kind of tourist places and that was it. And so where we booked to stay, my impression of what I wanted was something that was kind of like a local village. You could go to a nice fish restaurant. It was close enough to the sea so we could go for a swim in the sea when we wanted to. Um, And where I booked, it seems to have been like a purpose built, not a tourist place, but like a purpose built for foreigners, I I feel like there was a strip mall that had lots of different restaurant types. So there was like pizza, there was Indian, there was all these different things. Uh, The apartment, I have to say, was absolutely stunning. But location wise, it wasn't great. It wasn't really that accessible for like where the nightlife was, you kind of had to get a taxi rather than a bus because the bus would take too long to get there. Um, so I think for for that reason, and again, kind of to serve as a warning, maybe check what is around there. I was looking at other places and because I'd never heard of them, I was like, I was dismissing them. But actually, I'd never heard of this place either. And I should have just dismissed this place and gone gone to somewhere that was a little bit closer to the action, like where we were was was quite far away. But like I said, it had what we needed. It, it was close to the supermarket. It, the apartment itself was beautiful. It had a lovely big terrace. Your clothes can dry in like an hour or two in the sun. And it, we had a gorgeous pool as well, which was amazing. That sounds quite nice in a private pool. <laughs> it, oh, sorry, not a private pool. It was shared pool oh, for the sorry. complex. Yeah, yeah, not a, not no. a private pool. Not that fancy. Come on now, James. <laughs> I think uh, that's everything, I guess, for section two. You've touch some some amazing things thank you so welcome back to the podcast along section three which i still haven't named but it's essentially a review because if you've been listening since day one i've always said i'm going to name this part of the podcast and i haven't so apologies for that um but if this is where i basically ask my guests on some some reviews or some uh, advice they wish to share with with listeners. Uh, it, it doesn't have to be country specific. It can be generically about moving abroad. So I guess it's your kind of checklist of things you'd like to do before you move to another destination, and uh, things you've learned along the way. Really, yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's just lo- there's loads of stuff, really, isn't there? It's uh, making sure that you you know where you're going. Are you arriving in? At night time, you're arriving in in the daytime, depending on what time your flights are. How are you getting from the airport to where you're going? Do people know where you're going? Do they have the address for where you're going? How are you going to connect with people? I think the beauty now is that we have phones of everything. We can check on Google Maps. If you're certainly if you're in within the EU, and I know you might have some UK listeners, probably have some UK listeners. And I don't know how this applies, but I know certainly within the EU, there's an agreement where you can roam and it's free. So you get free roaming data, whereas previously you would have had to pay for it. But now you have that. And so if you have Google Maps or anything like that, you can even look on it when you're in the taxi, which is what I did when we were arriving to Tenerife um, to say, like, to, to kind of direct him or not to direct him more so to make sure that we weren't being taken for a ride. You know, we weren't being taken the long way or anything like that. So I think knowing those things and having your wits about you 
not having your your money on display, um, things like that. And I'm trying to think now other stuff. I I tend to wing a lot of these things. I think when you're arriving somewhere, maybe you don't realize just how lonely it's going to be or the fact that you could be running away from a problem that you had at home, but actually you take your problems with you because they're in your head a lot of the time. So just knowing things like that um, and just when you get somewhere and you are there on your own, is there something that you can do or is there a ritual that you can set up or don't? You know, when I was traveling, there's times where I got really lonely and I what I do then is I isolate myself, which makes me more lonely. So thinking about ways to get yourself out there, just get out for a walk, go to the supermarket, go to a co-working space and get yourself out of that headspace where you're feeling a little bit alone, I think is is really, really important. Um, try and immerse yourself in the culture, in the language. A lot of the places that I went to, I spoke the language anyway, which was handy. And before I came to Tenerife, I picked up Duolingo again. I think I had done it in the past, but I picked it up again. But I think the important thing is to practice it. So put yourself in situations where you have to use it and meet people who are local and who speak the language. What I'm seeing in, so like, let's say if I compare London to Tenerife, London, I was very into finding people who were from the UK and making friends with them because not everyone who worked in London was from London. They were from all different parts of the UK and they were there much like I was there. Um, So I was trying to kind of immerse myself in that a little bit, not just stick to the Irish people. Whereas what I find in Tenerife, especially there's a big expat crowd, which is great. And I love being part of that. But I also like the local culture as well. So having local friends, I think, is is important. So not it's not just that that it's not necessarily just the expat community that you're involved with, but but you're contributing to the local community as well. I think that's that's something. Um, but I know before we started recording, you mentioned about the reverse culture shock, and I had been gone from Ireland for about seven seven years, I think it was when I was in London and Australia and doing all of my travels. And when I came back then to Ireland, it was it's a period of adjustment just to to kind of get back into things. Having traveled for so long, getting back into a, a work routine was hard. And when I look back at that time now, there was no um there was no sort of understanding around the fact that I hadn't been working for well over a year. It was like being on maternity leave, but not having any sort of adjustment period back into working, ways of working, getting into routines, dealing with clients, all of that kind of thing. So there was that side of things from a work perspective, having traveled for so long. But then also from a friend's perspective, like my friends, basically, because I've been gone so long, they forgot that I was back. So when there was stuff happening, when there was nights out, when they were going to the you know, going to the theater when they were having birthday drinks, anything like that. For the first few months, people forgot that I was I was around. So I was hearing about things either after or right before things happened. Um, so it took a while for my friends to get used to me being back around and knowing that I was there for, you know, and interested in having nights out and maybe didn't do myself any favors because I probably was feeling sorry for myself and saying, oh, well, I was traveling and it was so great. And now I'm back in Dublin and it's cold and it's raining and it's dark and and whatever. Um, 
So I think, yeah, give yourself give yourself a break if you're trying to settle back into life at home, if you've been gone for a while. I do remember someone, one of my friends in London saying, and if you ever come back to London, don't think of it as a failure. And I never would have considered it a failure because I tried, you know, I went off and I went to Australia and I traveled all over the world. I never once would consider going back to London as a failure or going back to Dublin as a failure. Like I went out and I did all of those things, which is why I said earlier in the podcast that I never considered Dublin as like, this has to be it. This has to be forever. There was always the option that I could go and travel. And I think after 10 years at home, I kind of got to that stage where I was like, oh, maybe now is the time. And Tenerife just happened to be the place where it could have been anywhere. I could have ended up anywhere. That's so interesting to think about your friends. So it was just seeing you as this constant state of being away. <laughs> yeah. And then having to get used to being back. And yeah. Yeah. It's, it is interesting coming back to your home country. Albeit I wasn't away for long and I did come back quite a few times for Christmas and Easter and things. But I did feel a difference in the way the country was run. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Because yeah. the UK, well, the UK especially is going through quite a turbulent time yeah. <laughs> recently. Yeah. And watching it from the outside was quite interesting, comparing it to a Scandinavian country, which is run relatively well. So well, uh, yeah, yeah. They do have issues, like everyone has issues, but they seem to be a lot more open about how to uh, develop them. And I didn't see, I didn't see angry people in the street. <laughs> whilst I'm I was trying in... to say something about the UK. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it might also work for Ireland because uh, I've been to Dublin. And people just don't seem to be in the street having arguments. Where I yeah, maybe it's maybe because it's usually British people who do that when they go abroad. But um, yeah, I used to, they didn't see really many uh, altercations. Maybe Swedish people are more they are actually more recluse and then try not to be confrontational. Whereas definitely the English are quite confrontational, can be. Um, and so can the Irish and the Irish and English together can be very confrontational. <laughs> yeah. um, growing up in Liverpool, I'm worse at <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's very nice completely. But on the kind of flip side of that, the the being <laughs> the ability to, to go and meet people for a drink was really difficult in Sweden compared to the UK because they just didn't do that. It wasn't part of the culture to go and be social with strangers. It was... That's one great thing about the UK and Ireland as well. I think it's quite similar in that sense of culture where you can go to that the is pub okay. and can, yeah. Yeah. you can make friends yeah. that night and there's always someone and no yeah. one cares. And you no. could end up being friends then because you're both in a similar situation. You're abroad and you're you're in a place where maybe you don't speak the language. And yeah, it's that's, that is really nice actually. And it does, I think, apply to, to UK and um, and Ireland as well, yeah. Um, is there anything else you'd want to share about your life or travels or your experiences? Yeah, I think maybe going back, just this one thing, I, I did touch on it when I talked about London, like where I was waiting for someone to say, come on, let's go to London. I didn't realise that that's not everyone's dream. So different people have different dreams and aspirations for their life. That was one of mine that I assumed. I falsely assumed that everyone wanted to do that. And so it took me a long time to build up the courage to do it myself. It took me a long time to realize that not everyone wants to go to London and live there and work there. And, you know, I did. And 
I think if someone's listening today and they're aspiring to travel, to go somewhere or to spend some time somewhere, I think don't wait for someone else to give you permission. Don't wait for someone else to grab you by the hand to go with you. Think about what you want for yourself and make it happen. I went scared. Like I didn't know what the future held in London at all. I didn't have a job. I left a permanent pensionable as my aunt called it. I did that multiple times over my career. So think about what it is that you want to do and and turn that into a reality. And I might be looking back at London with rose tinted glasses. I'm sure it was really tough at the start when I first got there, trying to settle in, trying to make friends. But when I look back now on the overall experience, it was like, like I said, it was one of the best times of my life, I would have to say. That, that's so true. And um, yeah, there's never a better time than today to go do something. So you, you don't know what the future holds, right? Do you? So if you do have a dream, then you really should be trying to, maybe it's not possible, maybe you have different things in your life, which mean you have to postpone that, but you can still action something today in order exactly. to... Exactly, yeah. Even just try, I mean, try the language or try and make friends in that area or connect with people online or something so that you can live vicariously through other people who are doing that or do research, find out how you can do it. And um, like, I don't have a family of my own. I don't have kids or anything like that. But I've often heard people use kids as an excuse not to do like, oh, I couldn't travel because I have kids or I couldn't move country because I have kids. I couldn't go to Tenerife because I have kids. But there are other people out there who are doing it with kids as well. So if you're, whether it's kids or whether it's something else, have a think about what that blocker is for you and find out who else, who's doing that already. You know, is there someone who's doing it on an absolute shoestring budget where they don't really have that much money at all? They've brought a tent in their, in their, you know, in the back of a car or something like that. So just, you know, there are don't use it as an excuse not to do something. It's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, hopefully you'll find that kind of person on this podcast because hopefully the the scope of people I'm trying to get inspiration from and, and share stories of will hopefully be someone from all over the world and has done all kinds of traveling and every single you know manifestation that could possibly be um, as that kind of reference. Um, that's the dream anyway. Um, yeah, anyway, thank you so much for sharing your amazing story with me and, and the people who listen to this podcast. And um, I suppose if you want to share you out your podcast and well, what it is you do, then please, yeah. please do. Yeah, of course. Like I, I mentioned, I didn't really talk much about work at all today, which is unusual because that's what I spend most of my time talking about. Um, but my business is called Happier at Work and my podcast is the same name. So Happier at Work, if you look Look for it on YouTube. Look for it on um, any podcast platform that you're listening to. Do a search in the in the search function for Happier at Work and you will find my podcast. I'm up to, as we're recording this, and I, I'm conscious that it's it'll be a while before it's released, but I'm up to, it's in the 180s now at this stage, um, podcast episodes. So there's loads to choose from. Sometimes people are a bit overwhelmed by it. So if you want to reach out and you want to know something specific about um uh, you know, something that I can point you in the right direction of. For me, it does what it says on the tin. So it's for employees, but it's also for leaders as well about creating happier working environments. What are the steps that you need to do? I keep it very practical as well. So like 
you're coming away from each episode with some specific actions that you can take and implement straight away at work. Amazing. I'll be sure to, uh, to forward that to my boss. Uh, <laughs> and I'll be sure to put uh, links to it in, in the show notes and, and show about it on my social platforms as well because it's a, a great thing to, to have and hopefully people yeah, can share information and, and get knowledge on. Um, as always, if you did learn something new from this podcast and did find something insightful, please do share it with your friends and family and uh, please subscribe for amazing more content about all this stuff. And if you do want to ask any questions to Ethan, then I think uh, either ask me and I can forward it on or... Definitely, um, like, yeah. Feel free to connect. Will be, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll be on it. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you very much. And we'll see you next time for the Expert Pod.